Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Father, as we look at these words and seek to be shaped by them, we pray that you would give us the grace to honor those to whom we owe honor. But we pray that you would help us to understand the gift of authority rightly, not only to understand it, but somehow to find a way to love it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When I told my parents that I wanted to be a novelist and that I intended to make a living writing, they were extremely supportive. Many parents would be worried if their kids said, I want to grow up and be an artist. Mine weren't worried at all. They said, that's a wonderful idea. We completely support you. But we also think you should go to law school as a backup. And uh, I ended up not going to law school, but after making that decision, I met a lot of lawyers, and I was really jealous because lawyers get to, you know, talk and, and, and sort of yell and make arguments and stuff like that, and they're paid to basically strut around in, in front of people and, and make a spectacle of themselves rhetorically, and I thought there's just no other job but lawyer that lets you do this. Turns out I was wrong. Pastor is also a job that has a lot of those qualifications as well. But occasionally I'll find myself wondering what would have happened if I'd gone to law school. I have a friend who's a law professor, and he's always giving me these little nuggets of wisdom that he learned in law school. And one of the maxims that he learned was this saying, difficult cases make bad law. Difficult cases make bad law. In other words, if the circumstances, if the facts of a particular case are really complicated, it's all kind of convoluted and really highly specific to that situation, then whatever general principles you try to learn from it, whatever sort of general rules you derive from it or laws, they're not going to be really good because they come out of a circumstance that's just too fraught with complexity, too complicated, that sort of thing. I think about that as I preach 
these words of Paul about authority. Because we live in a moment where authority has really become, to use a favored term of the day, problematic. If I say to you, God wants you to love authority, a lot of you are going to hear that and say, you know, I don't know. I have a problem with that. I find I don't love authority. It's difficult to love authority. I look around and I see what authority does, and that's really hard to get my head around. I understand that. As, as divided as the world around us is, as much conflict as there is, it may seem to you like saying, hey, God wants you to love authority and, and, and take on board these words of Paul. You may feel like, ah, I just can't go there. But I think now more than ever, it's important that we do go there. Because when we're facing difficult circumstances, when we are in hard cases, convoluted, circumstances where it's difficult to know what side to be on. It's at moments like that that it's most important for us to have a grounding in first principles. If we want to act rightly, we need to begin by thinking rightly. And Paul is going to show us how to think rightly about authority, what authority is. There are a lot of Christians right now who are speaking with a lot of moral conviction a lot of moral clarity, but I wonder sometimes if our conviction comes from biblical commitments or cultural ones. If we're so sure that we're right, are we sure because we're standing on Scripture? Are we sure because of other reasons? You can see from our text this morning, as a Christian, you are called to love authority, not just tolerate it, but to love it, to submit to it, to subject yourself to it. And as Paul makes clear, the way that you love authority is to be subject to it. The way that you love authority is to be subject to it and to do what is good. To be subject to it, to do what is good, and to pay what you owe. That's how we love authority. Of course, you're already thinking about authorities that will lead you astray, authorities that you feel like you shouldn't be subject to and you shouldn't love. What do we do with corrupt authorities? What do we do with authorities that will lead us astray, authorities that are unjust? We'll talk about that too, because Jesus shows us what to do with unjust authorities, how to deal with them. Before we go too far, though, um, I want to unlearn some assumptions that we all make about authority, about government, some things that we think we know for certain, but We really don't. Uh, These are enlightenment ideas about government, about authority that we've taken on board for ourselves, and they're not biblical. So first of all, government is not a necessary evil. We often tell ourselves the reason there is government is because of sin, because of the fall it is now necessary for government to exist in order to restrain evil. This is not the biblical view of authority and the biblical view of government. Government does not arise out of sin. Government actually comes before sin. When you start telling yourself uh, government is a necessary evil, when you tell yourself authority is a necessary evil, that in a perfect world there would be no authority, there would be no one to rule over anyone else, all of that is a consequence of the fall. You're channeling Rousseau, not Paul. The Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau famously wrote, man is born free, but he is everywhere in chains. 
Man is born free, but he is everywhere in chains, which is a beautiful phrase, which I can appreciate as, as a writer. But Rousseau happens to be wrong on both counts. The Apostle Paul would say, man is not born free. Man is born in bondage to sin. People, when they act according to their nature, do not act freely, and they do not act justly because of the corruption of sin. But also, Rousseau is wrong, Paul would say, to look around and see government, to see authority at work, and to make the mistake of thinking that all government is a form of bondage, that all exercise of authority is a kind of oppression. That's not true. Governing authority, the Apostle Paul would point out, is not necessarily oppressive. In fact, at its best, it's meant to be not oppression, but cultivation. In our Grace at Work meetings, one of the things that we talked about quite a bit was the purpose of work, why human beings were given the the task of working. Of course, Adam and Eve are placed in a garden to tend and to keep it, to cultivate, to give form to the raw material of creation. And in order to be able to do that work, God gave them dominion over that creation. He gave them authority to do the work he had called them to, authority to cultivate, to give form to that land. And he did that before the fall, not after it. The government goes back farther than the fall, farther than we realize. Another thing, too, though, is government is a broader concept than we often realize. When we think about government, when we think about authority, we think about it almost exclusively in terms of the state, right? the federal government, something like that. But from a biblical point of view, you're surrounded by governments that have nothing to do with the state. God has established many different governments, many different principalities of various size. He's raised up different rulers to govern. These God-ordained governments all kind of work together. God has given you authority to govern yourself. That task of self-government, of self-cultivation, is fundamental to what it means to be a human being made in God's image. He's also created households. And given the heads of those households, the authority to govern those households, to give form to the raw material of those households. Churches, too, have a government that God has ordained. When you look at the establishment of the church in Scripture, you see God raising up leaders within the church and giving those leaders authority within the church as well. That's true of many different human enterprises and institutions including governments with a big G as we think of it, including the justice system. All of these are examples of government, all of them God ordained, all of them an exercise of authority that is legitimate, that is right, that is a means that God uses. In each of these situations, there are responsibilities that those of us who are under authority have to authority. We have obligations. And there are also responsibilities that those who wield authority on God's behalf have as well. The power, in other words, comes with responsibilities. And the Westminster Larger Catechism spells these out in depth. That those who govern, those who judge, those who rule have obligations to God and to those over whom 
they have authority. All of that is biblical. All of that is the way authority works. In other words, authority, government, it doesn't work the way we think it does in our culture. Have a biblical view of authority means changing some things. Well, to have a view of authority is one thing. To actually love it is something else. If you're going to love authority, not just acknowledge the, the legitimacy of authority, but actually love it, you have to participate in this economy of authority that God has ordained and created. The only way to love authority, in other words, is to subject yourself to it. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So all authority is delegated from God. Whatever the authority is, whatever the power is, wherever it comes from, all of it is delegated from God, and it all has strings attached. God expects the authority that he delegates to be used the right way. And he also expects that authority to be respected for his sake. So that if you resist authority, Paul says, you're resisting God. You're resisting what God has instituted and ordained. And as a result, you're subject to judgment. Don't complain if you're punished for resisting authority because you're resisting God and you should expect that punishment. You love authority by subjecting yourself to it, he says. Subjecting yourself to it. That's the fulfillment of the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother, to honor those God has placed in authority over you. That duty of honor, which is the last idea that we have in verse 7 of our text, that's what motivates everything that Paul is teaching here. That commandment to pay honor where honor is due to the authorities that God has established. But what does it mean to subject yourself? Subject yourself to something. When we use words like that, we never mean something good by it. You know, to subject yourself to something is to endure, to put up with, to force yourself to go through some suffering. You, you subject yourself to duty. You subject yourself to having to spend time with people that you don't want to spend time with. You subject yourself to experiences you would rather just skip. And you do it for some greater good, right? But when you subject yourself, we, we don't often think of that as something you would do for, for pleasure. You don't subject yourself to something for your own sake. But actually, I want to suggest that you do. You may not realize it, but some of the most enjoyable and pleasurable experiences that we have in life come to us only when we subject ourselves to them. To be a good reader, you need to be able to subject yourself to the story. Now, I'm biased here because I'm an author, but I'm going to tell you, some readers don't know how to read. And they're the ones who read with a kind of critical spirit. They're the people who read the, the, the fantasy story and are constantly saying, well, that wouldn't really happen. I don't think dragons would do that. And you're like, no, they wouldn't because they don't exist. But you have to suspend your disbelief and enter into the story. You have to kind of um, give up control to the author 
so that you can experience this thing that he has created for you. That's subjecting yourself to the experience. You are suspending a spirit of criticism so that you can enter into the pleasure wholeheartedly. Do something similar in a marriage. In a marriage relationship, you subject yourself to the relationship, uh, which is not a, a, a pain to endure, but it's, it's something to enter into wholeheartedly that reveals its delights only over time, through the suspension of self, through subjecting yourself to the relationship to the other person that you've been called into relationship with. And when you do this, when you subject yourself to a, to a book or to a relationship, you're not ignoring the faults. You're not pretending like everything is perfect. Like even in a good book, you will see certain things that honestly are shortcomings. Even in a good marriage, you will see things that honestly fall short of perfection. I know from experience, I'm constantly the things that fall short of perfection. But the absence of perfection doesn't mean it's not a good relationship or a good book or not something you should subject yourself to. This idea of subjecting yourself, it's kind of like saying, okay, I'm not in charge, but I am going to be a part of this. I'm not running the show, but I am going to enter into and be a part of the community. I'm not the leader, but I am going to be active in being led. I am going to be a part of this. In other words, wholehearted participation. To subject yourself to authority is to wholeheartedly participate in that relationship, to identify with it in the sense of having like a a shared sense of welfare. Kind of a, a Jeremiah 29 thing. When Jeremiah speaks of, of being invested in the well-being and the welfare of the city into which you've been placed in exile, he's talking about identifying with that city, being subject to the life of the city, and caring about what is good for it. All of that is what it means to be subject to authority. It's more than obedience. It's obedience. There are people who think that if you love authority, your attitude it's going to be something like uh, my country, right or wrong. You know, if I love authority, then I'm going to be patriotic and, and I'm not going to condemn anything that my authority does. Kind of like a sports team rooting for your team. I'm in favor of whatever my team does, that sort of thing. That's not what subjecting yourself to authority is. Subjecting yourself to authority is more than mere obedience. It's obedience, but it's also that that identification, that wholehearted alliance, that faithfulness, so that when we see authority doing good, we rejoice. But when we see authority doing what it shouldn't do, because we are part of it, we long to see it do right. We long to see the injustice corrected. That's part of being subject to being a participant with authority. It's not just I suck up to authority, and whatever authority says is right. But I am subject to authority. I have a stake in whether or not the judge does what is just. So how do you subject yourself to authority? Paul says, first and foremost, 
It's, it's through a commitment to do good. Your relationship with authority depends fundamentally on whether or not you're committed to do good. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You can see how a teaching like this could be easily abused. We can say to ourselves, whatever receives approval from authority must be good, and whatever authority punishes must be bad. But the problem is, what if the authority is corrupt? We wouldn't say that whatever Nazi Germany approved of must be good, and whatever Soviet Russia condemned must be evil, right? Is whatever the United States punishes necessarily evil? Of course not. Of course not. We recognize the possibility of authority being corrupt. But let's be careful not to let exceptions to the rule invalidate the rule itself, which is what we do oftentimes with passages like this. The Apostle Paul says, be subject to authority. And we say to ourselves, yeah, but authority is corrupt. So honestly, you can't really, you can't listen to what Paul's saying here. In fact, you must. Because we're called here to, to do what Paul commands and yet not be blind to the fact that authority isn't always what it ought to be. There's a way of godly obedience, right? Every government derives its authority from God and is accountable to God, and we obey these lesser authorities for the sake of God. And when we disobey them, we disobey them because of our obedience to the higher authority that they derive their authority from. And this is what the apostles teach us in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when they say we ought to obey God rather than man. If a lesser authority commands us to do what God has forbidden, we have to follow the higher authority. That's not the same thing as rebellion. It's not rebellion against authority to follow God's authority, even when a corrupt lesser authority tells us to. You see the difference. It's faithfulness to the highest authority that justifies disobedience to an unfaithful lesser authority. That's the principle of Acts 5, but let's not abuse the principle. Let's not pretend that that because the authority isn't perfect, because the authority isn't the one we voted for, because the authority doesn't share our faith or our view of the world, that we are off the hook and that we don't have to pay attention to what Paul says here. There's a presumption in favor of obedience to authority. And if we are to be disobedient for the sake of God, that's something that we need to carefully scrutinize and justify in order to make sure that it is obedience to God that motivates us and not simply rebellion, not simply discontent. In other words, we're called to be at peace with authority, even authority that isn't perfect, even authority that's far from perfect. We're called to be at peace, at peace with God-given authority. And where there's tension, where there's tension, what we want from authority is for authority to do its job. We don't want to destroy or abolish authority. We want authority to be more godly. We want authority to take its duty seriously 
and to follow God as we seek to follow him. In other words, when you love authority, you're never rebellious, but you are always reforming. We're always longing to see the authority, whether it's the authority that governs you as an individual, the authority within the household, the authority within the church, the authority within the state, always longing to see these authorities do what is right, be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. To love authority, you have to not only recognize your obligation to authority, you have to embrace those obligations. Paul says, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because of this, you also pay taxes. The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So he's not counseling subjection so that you can avoid punishment. He's not saying you should be subject to authority so that people don't perceive Christians as being rebellious and the church can flourish. He's not suggesting anything like that. He's saying subjection is motivated not just by fear of punishment, but by conscience. That we recognize that we have an obligation to one another, that we have duties to one another, that we have obligations to the authorities that God has placed in our life, to the community, to the body. You owe something, in other words. And conscience dictates that you should pay what you owe, whether it's taxes or revenue or respect or honor. What I love about these seven verses is if you're kind of a law and order person, you enjoy the first half of this statement because it sounds like it's saying like criminals need to start being good, and then they won't have problems with the police. But then it gets to taxes, and we all know taxes are wrong, and we shouldn't have to pay them, and nobody likes to do that. And, and so you get kind of a one-two punch, right? That There's an obligation that all of us have, and it's not just to not speed too much above the speed limit. It's also to, to keep your, your obligations, to uphold your responsibilities to authority. The question is, what about bad authority? What do we do about those authorities you mentioned earlier that are authorities that seem to corrupt, the authorities that it seems we shouldn't follow? What's interesting, Paul, when he talks about authority, says that the authorities are instituted by God. The authority is God's servant for your good. The authority is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He even says authorities are ministers of God. And we all know, historically, the authorities who governed in Paul's life were Roman authorities. It's really strange to hear him using terms like this to describe the Romans, who were wicked and idolatrous and, you know, bloodthirsty oppressors. And yet he looks at that corrupt authority and he says these things about it. As idolatrous as it was, the Roman Empire was one, Paul says, we must subject ourselves to. We see from his narrative, he took it seriously. His Roman citizenship mattered to him. See this in the Old Testament, when King David, anointed by God to be the man after God's own heart, finds King Saul, this wicked king, in his power, time and again, he doesn't kill him. He doesn't even wound him. He honors him. He respects him. 
because he is God's anointed. That attitude towards authority is one that should teach us something. The authority that we see around us in the nation that we live in, as idolatrous as the United States is, as disobedient as it can be, we are called to be subject to this authority. But don't ever make excuses for the sin of authority. Be subject to authority, but never make excuses for the wrongdoing of authority. Because when authority does what's wrong, our response shouldn't be to make excuses. It shouldn't be to pretend that we don't see that it's wrong. If we want to know what to do about corrupt authority, we just need to look at the example of Jesus. What did Jesus do in relation to authority? Now, people went to Jesus hoping that they could uh, lift the tax burden. Jesus is coming. He's inaugurating a kingdom. Well, Caesar has a kingdom. Maybe in Jesus's kingdom, you're no longer subject to Caesar's kingdom. So they ask him, trying to trap him, what should we do? Should we pay taxes or not? That's where Jesus looks at the coin. It has Caesar's face on. Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. In other words, our obligations are more complex than we realize. But that's not the only statement Jesus makes in relation to authority. How does Jesus deal with corrupt authority in the church? How does Jesus handle Pharisees, for example? Is he deferential? Does he give them a pass? Does he not call them out on their wrongdoing or anything like that? No. Jesus is a vocal critic of corrupt authority, but always in the name of a higher authority. The reason that there's tension between Jesus and church authority is because Jesus is committed completely to the will of the Father, and church authority is not. And there will always be tension when that is the case. And Jesus does what we should do. He's vocal about it. He acknowledges it. He's honest about it. He doesn't make excuses for it. Neither should we. But remember, in speaking out in that way, we speak out to vindicate and to honor a higher authority, not simply to undermine the idea of authority itself. In my experience, there's two reasons why we struggle with authority. And the first one is the easy one. That's sin. We all struggle with authority because none of us want to be under the yoke of authority. We all want autonomy. We all want that, that freedom from the authority that God has instituted. And you see this acting out in, in all human beings in every context, including in the church. Christians who reject the authority that God has placed over us, you see it constantly. We want to be free from that authority. But not all problems with authority stem from that. I think there's another kind of difficulty that we have that that, that is related more to what I touched on earlier, and it's that question of the kingdom. It's a question of allegiance. Like, who do we owe allegiance to if we are in Christ? Does the, the kingdom of Christ end our commitment to man's kingdom? And as Jesus demonstrates, it's not as simple as that. We are in the kingdom of Christ, but called to live in the kingdom of man and to deal with the tensions 
that result. Sometimes our failure is a failure to realize that the spiritual kingdom is much bigger than all these physical kingdoms, but that God works through these lesser authorities to accomplish his word. And what we've been called to do is something like uh, to be faithfully present in the kingdom of man. Be a faithful presence like Daniel was in the land of exile. To be faithful to God, but present in the land of exile. To testify to the higher authority of God, but to do so from a place of respect and subordination to the authorities which God has established. There are people who are in conflict with authority who think that the answer is revolution. They want to end the conflict by destroying the enemy, by burning it all down. There are all other people, different kinds of people, also in conflict with authority, but what they want to do is see authority return to what it used to be. They want to restore some past way that they, they see as more conducive to their own viewpoint. They want restoration. They want to end the conflict by going back to some earlier time that they can agree with more easily. A lot of Christians who are in conflict with authority think the answer is revival. They think they can end the conflict with authority by transforming the authority into what it should be. But then there are people who love authority, who are not in conflict with authority, despite the tensions that exist. People who are trusting Christ to handle the tension and the conflict. who are committed to being faithfully present, even in a corrupt authority to keep their commitments and to always reform the world around them into a closer conformity to Christ. That's who Jesus has called us to be. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.